Welcome to the Ephesiology Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the study of the early Christian movement and its implications for the church today. Today, we are with our with Michael, our resident ephesiologist. I'm Andrew Johnson, associate pastor at Newtown Church in Houston, Texas, and our favorite Matt, Matt Till, is actually in the process of moving, and he cannot be with us today. So, Michael, you're stuck with me. All right. Well, that's a good person to be stuck with. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Michael, we, you and I were talking off mic before we started recording, and it seemed that there is a recent study that came out from Barna, and it, it peaked our interest. It piqued yours so much. You've already written a blog post about it. And then today we're going to kind of hash out bits and pieces of this study that we thought were um, worth our time and worth our listeners' time. So uh, what was the study about and and what are we going to be looking at today? Well, over the past several years, if not uh, a couple of decades, Barna has been conducting surveys to determine uh, who in the United States holds a what he would define as a Christian worldview, and and who doesn't? And uh, and the most recent study came out last August, and r- reports have been trickling out into the uh, the webosphere. Is that what we call that thing? The cloud sphere, wherever I mean, those things. Say really ether. You know, it's not in the ether, but it is what's on in front of our eyeballs and uh, everyone. It's those leaks, right? Like, you know, you're going to yep. release something that you want people talking about, but you don't release the whole thing of tidbits. Yep. Yep. So those tidbits have been coming out and and they've, they've been interesting uh, for sure. I mean, they do tell us something about what's happening in the context of the United States and and uh, and so, of course, we're interested in that, and particularly, we're interested in the intersection of faith and culture, and and uh, and we've been talking a lot about uh, how culture has impacted us, um, and how so often we as Christians will begin to imitate culture, and uh, and in fact, what we're seeing in this Barna study is that Christianity has been impacted by culture and, uh, and in, at some level is imitating culture. Um, and as a result of that imitation, it has progressively uh, moved away from what Barna defines as a Christian worldview. So now um, two related pieces of data I think are important here. Uh, because in 2017, Barnett identified that 17% of Christians who consider faith important uh, actually held a biblical worldview, and this was 2017. And in 2021, that number uh, has uh, slid to be about 6% of, uh, of Americans have an identifiable Christian worldview. And so we, there's a you know an eleven point loss there of uh, percentage points loss of of uh, 
those who will have an identifiable Christian uh, worldview. That is a not small number. An 11 point swing seems entirely significant. Uh, so for our listeners, I mean, wow, that is a huge swing. Uh, the Barna Research Group in general will uh, define a biblical worldview as believing that there are absolute moral truths uh, that exist, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches, that Satan is considered to be a real being or force, um, not merely something that's symbolic, that a person cannot earn their way to heaven by trying to be good or doing good works, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. So that's Barna's definition of worldview. And they've been, like I said, they've been tracking this uh, statistically since 1995. And, uh, and so we have a good, a good uh, longitudinal study here of these different beliefs over a course of time. Now, we might contest uh, his definition of worldview. That, that's not important. And I know as these reports come out, oftentimes people will be critical and ask the question, well, why is he defining worldview in that way? Why do you have to believe in Satan or why do you have to believe this or that? to be or to not to be a, a Christian. Um, that for me is not of concern. Uh, to, what's of interest to me is the, the range of the data and, uh, and the results of that data over a period of time. And whether or not we agree with his definition of worldview, I don't think is all that important, but certainly we can see within that study that there are ideas that are forming in the American psyche, if you will, that clearly are antithetical to Christianity. You brought up the idea, essentially, who's influencing who. Um, we as Christians want to show up in culture, um, as we have talked at great lengths about through uh, your book on Ephesiology, self-titled Ephesiology, as we've looked at the Ephesian church, we see this example of this, uh, this church uh, located in Ephesus and, and how they grow in Christ and that their growth in Christ was palpable to the world around them, that there was no, um, there was no confusing, right, who was their Lord and what they were about. And that led to change within the culture. And there were there were benefits of Christians in that culture that were seen. And thus, you would look at that Ephesian church and be able to say, wow, it seems like the Christians there were influencing culture. There were, there were changes that were uh, attributable to Christ's work in them. And mm -hmm. through that world, he got the glory. And so now we ask the question again, who is influencing who? Uh, and this dwindling of those who would say, yes, uh, as Kinnaman or uh, as Barna says, this integrated disciple that has fall has fallen a great deal. Um, what are some of the factors that you believe, Michael, that have led to this precipitous fall? 
Well, you know, it's not so much factors that I believe that have led uh, have uh, led to this fall, but it's the reality of what we're seeing um, in in our context in the American context. Um, I think there are multiple factors that correlate to the decline that we see. And it, I mean, again, it's going to go back to the 1990s um, and then move forward. But the the prevalence of multiple religious expressions, for example, in the context of the United States is well documented. Uh, we're in an incredibly diverse, rel- religiously diverse uh, country. And, uh, and that diversity impacts the way in which we perceive others and even the way in which we perceive ourselves. Uh, let me are give you, you uh, just to jump in. Are you, yeah. when you say that we have this great um, diversity, uh, the pluralism, right, uh, of religions all around this, are you stating that as a, as a neutral fact? Are you stating that as a, or a value statement? This is a bad thing that there are all these other religious beliefs around us. I, it's kind of a loaded question, but um, I just want to make sure that we're using the same terms. Right. No, I, I'm, I'm thinking of it in this case, that this is a neutral uh, thing, but it does have an impact on the way in which right. we believe. So for example, let me give you two, two examples um, of how this has played out over uh, really the past two centuries. Um, in 1896 was the uh, centennial celebration of the World Exposition in, in Chicago. Uh, and uh, at that exposition, uh, Christians were uh, d- delighted to invite people, uh, religious leaders from different religious backgrounds from all over the world to Chicago to showcase the, the benefits of Christianity. And, uh, and once these leaders attended the, the exposition, they began to um, converse with one another and uh, realized that there was a tremendous need in the United States because of what they perceived to be uh, rampant immorality, uh, whether it was materialism or, or whatever it was, w- would be. And, uh, and that was the beginning of deliberate missionary activities of other religions into the United States. Most no- notable was, um, was uh, Swami Vivekananda from India, who introduced yoga in the United States um, in the late 1800s and going into the early 1900s. And now yoga is prevalent everywhere in the United States. In fact, um, uh, yoga is practiced in some churches uh, as as ways to um, benefit a person's health and and uh, and be used for physical exercise and so on. What what I find fascinating about that is how rapidly it spread and how uh, really utterly successful it's been in uh, penetrating the American uh, Christian mind. And so many Christians have no problem whatsoever in practicing yoga. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I share this story with Indian Christians and they look at me just absolutely puzzled. What, what do you mean American Christians are practicing yoga? Don't they know that that's a part of Hinduism? Are they becoming Hindu? 
And, uh, and so in the mind of an Indian, when they see an American practicing yoga, um, it, there is potentially the thought of a conversion that's taken place, or at least they're on a proper path so that when they are reincarnated, they could potentially be reincarnated in a Hindu context. Um, and that's, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? How that um, one religious belief um, has impacted the, the entire context of the United States. In fact, it comes out even in Barna's study. Uh, 57%, according to Barna, uh, of Americans believe in karma, and um, it, which is, of course, one of the core beliefs of Hinduism. Um, so, yeah, so uh, religious pluralism is certainly an, an issue. Uh, postmodern thinking as well um, is a part of that, too. Um, you know, we live in an age where truth is contested and all truth is contested and, you know, truth becomes relative to the individual. And so now it's not an ultimate truth that is important, but it's a personal truth that becomes important. And that's um, the same in the same way, because I, I want to make sure that we're uh, continue to talk like when you, when you note that postmodernism has as a thought run rampant i want to make sure we saying again is that a neutral statement uh or is that a value statement are we saying the increase in postmodernism uh is bad or are you really saying the loss of truth is bad yeah well what i'm saying is that the increase of a postmodern worldview or deconstructionist worldview correlates with the, the declines that we're seeing in this Barna study. And so, for example, if a deconstructionist or postmodern worldview would hold to the idea that truth is subjective, then it doesn't surprise us, for example, when Barna says that 52% of those who self-identify as Christians believe that the Bible is accurate and reliable as the word of God. Only 52 percent. Um, um, in other words, 48 percent don't believe that it's accurate or reliable or or they're on some continuum of not believing it. Uh, 60 percent of born again Christians believe the Bible is accurate or reliable. 58 percent of evangelicals, uh, 74 percent of those who are born again. And so and then you follow that up with that. Uh, this uh, other topic of of moral truth, according to Barna, at least as the question was asked, that determining moral truth is up to each individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. And so 52% of Christians would have agreed with that statement. 65% uh, of those who identify themselves as born again agree with that statement that there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone. 65% uh, of evangelicals and 40% and of those who identify themselves as being born again agree with that idea that there is no moral absolutes um, that apply to everyone. And so we're seeing a significant portion of the American population um, it has been impacted by what we might refer to as a postmodern worldview. So, and the only reason I want to, I have two thoughts. One, 
I just want to make sure we ask because um, let's just say the college that I went to <laughs> that you may be familiar with uh, in that day and age, postmodernism was used like a swear word, right? Like if you had any, any bits of postmodernism in your thinking or in your communication, you were anathema. Like, how? oh no, it's spread to you as well. Postmodernism is rampant. We have to eradicate postmodernism and postmodernism becomes the boogeyman that everybody in uh, somewhat uh, traditional Christianity is chasing after, trying to root out. And there are also some people who are just like, well, postmodernism also developed to say, hey, modernism had some things wrong. Like, some of the things that existed in that modernist way of thinking should have been questioned and called to task. And then some of those things, that's why I redirected and say, is it postmodernism or is it the loss of truth, moral truth, absolute truth? Because certainly these figures seem to show the loss of truth and absolute truth is the thing that is, is so far afield from historical, traditional Christianity. Um, and I'm not trying to do a tease, but we will be recording a podcast shortly talking about what things fall under that historical, traditional, the things that the church has believed with everyone for all time, everywhere. Um, I can't wait to, to record that, but it does, it does seem that when you look at a study like this, when you look at Barna's questions, um, when you hold those questions up to the people around you, they seem, uh, it's like, oh, that, I mean, yeah, sure, sure. You know, it, no, no moral absolutes. You know, there's some gray, there's some gray, but then you hold it up against what the church has historically believed for all time everywhere. And it's like, okay, this is very, very different. The way that the Bible talks about these things, the way that the church has believed for all time these sort of statements, Christians saying like, oh yeah, there's tons of great. We can't be sure. I mean, that's, that's great cause for alarm. And it's great cause for alarm because it is the erosion of a lot of the things that we have actually built our faith on. And so if there are people who are saying these sort of things aren't true anymore, that we, we can't know or have that absolute knowledge, the epistemology of it all is kind of like, so then what is your faith? Like, how do you believe what you believe or say you believe what you believe? Because you are actually disagreeing yourself with yourself in some way, shape and form. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I, we want to, you know, be careful, of course, when we're talking about these things and understand that truth is truth. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, whether, whether and you like it or not, <laughs> whether, whether, yeah, right. Whether you like it or not. And, um, and the, the, the relativity of truth, I suppose, is what's at issue here. Mm -hmm. um, and postmodernism, as you, I think, rightly uh, said, it, there are some benefits to it as it's critiquing uh, modernism. I mean, there's there, there are issues with terms anyway. I mean, uh, right. for example, Thomas Oden, when he talks about postmodernism, he talks about it very differently than uh, what we might read in Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida. Um, uh, for those of us who are not as cool, 
How does Odin talk about it? And how does Derrida talk about it that you are com- contrasting the two? Yeah, well, postmodernism, according to Odin, is a uh, revitalizing of the ancient in the modern. Um, he follows the, the line of thinking in architecture, where postmodern architecture is revitalizing um, the good things of the past and making them relevant in our time uh, today. Mm-hmm. And so you see that even in, in the city where you are, Andrew, one of my favorite buildings is the uh, what used to be called the Republic Bank Building. I don't know what it's called now down there, but um, it, that's an example of postmodern architecture. Um, for Foucault and Derrida and others, uh, the postmodernism is thought more along the lines of deconstructionism, where you're deconstructing uh, what it was that you once believed um, in a in a critical way, um, and and even going as far as to say that in the reconstruction potentially of it that it depends on who you are. Um, in, in hermeneutics, for example, this is where we get reader response uh, from this kind of deconstruction uh, idea that now it's, it's how I react to a text, for example, that makes it true or not true. Um, it's not true in and of itself or not true in and of itself. It's, it's how I now interpret it uh, because I am the one who is impacting the text and the text is impacting me. So uh, in some way, then I am the interpreter of that text, whether right or wrong. Um, and so we can see then the, the dangers in some cases of uh, a reader response, deconstructionist uh, hermeneutic that uh, relativizes truth altogether. And, you know, of course, the interesting thing about all of this is that in the midst of these um, competing views of interpretation, uh, that people will be very dogmatic about them. Well, yes, of course, we have to use a reader response hermeneutic. And, And then you sit back and you wonder, how can they be so dogmatic and believe this so strongly when they don't actually believe that there is an absolute truth? How can they be so absolutely certain that this is the way in which you interpret? And so there are, you know, those kinds of philosophical uh, problems with these various issues. And those creep into, you know, our, our day and age. Um, the past couple of years have certainly shown us that people hold very different views about so many different things. And, um, and we have been, uh, I suppose, in some way paying the price for um, how relative that we have held uh, things that, that might have been thought of in terms of truth before. Hmm. I wonder as we think of science, you know, I, I mean, um, yeah, but we, we, we don't want to go into those things. Well, no, I think, I think one of the things you're bringing up is, is very fascinating, which is, I wonder how many things were actually already different, that there were differing views. Um, but we did a whole lot better with interacting with people who disagreed with us. 
or that we disagreed with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not saying, I mean, obviously, even in the, in the Barna study, right? There's a, there's a downward shift. There were more people that believed these absolute truth type things and called themselves Christians through and through. And now there are far less. So obviously that is waning, but I don't think we, I mean, this is not a newsflash. We are not disagreeing with each other very well these days. And I don't think it's new that we have disagreements. I don't think it's new that we disagree passionately with people, but something has changed. There's a, there's something in the water. I don't know that uh, we just don't, we don't treat people well that we disagree with. And so I don't say that that it's Facebook has uh, affected our water supply. I would say Facebook just intensified our water supply. Right. I mean, um, yeah, it revealed it. Yeah. You know, I was out on a run this morning and thinking about these things. um, And uh, there'll be, I I imagine at least a blog that will, that will come out (laughs) as a result, but um, yeah, there, I I mean, this is historic. Um, And so we're not, I, I think you're right in saying that, that our disagreements have certainly intensified in recent years. Um, but that's not to say that there was a golden age when we didn't have all of these uh, these kinds of abusive behaviors toward one another. Um, it, yesterday, for example, was October 6th, uh, that day that we recognized the uh, martyrdom of William Tyndale, who translated the Bible uh, into English in England. And he was martyred because of that. I mean, here is a Christian uh, who loves the Lord and uh, desires to to see people uh, that read the, God's word, and yet there are others who disagree with him, and and rather than you know going in going into uh, uh, long uh, discussions about how to work these things out, the solution was simply to kill him. And so, you know, we have a long history in Christianity that goes back even further than Tyndale um, in Christian history. And so we have to, you know, in some way we need to reckon with those ideas and uh, and try to be better uh, ourselves. And, and by better, I think that what that means is to be more like Jesus. Obviously, the desire to be more like Jesus seems to be a really good idea. That doesn't seem, again, this is not, you know, this isn't new territory for us here on the Physiology Podcast. Hey, newsflash, we're going to talk about Jesus uh, and living like him is a better idea. Um, but I think, it's you know, good. it's it's interesting. Even that becomes somewhat polarizing in our day and age when people will say, well, didn't Jesus turn over the tables in the temple? Uh, didn't he make whips and chase people out because of what they were doing and, and uh, you know, th- these types of things. And yeah, those, those are true things, but there is a huge difference between divine anger and our anger. And, um, yes. and we often get those uh, mixed up and uh, think that our righteous anger is, in fact, what Jesus would have us do. And yet when, when 
you know, we think that we're acting righteously in our anger, uh, and we hurt others, other Christians that have good intentions and love the Lord and are trying their best to walk with Him, then uh, that should give us pause to ask the question, is our anger really righteous? And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so well, I, I think there needs to be a lot more self-reflection self-reflect, going on in Christianity and among Christians. To say the least. Uh, so I, the my quick thought is, especially for people who are just like, well, Jesus did this. So it gives me great right to do it too. Uh, as far as like flipping tables and, and uh, making whips. Um, but we also see Jesus getting down, uh, washing the disciples feet. Uh, we have him like, it's being awful picky and choosy, which part of Jesus you really want to reflect and then fight for. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, let's, let's talk about, I mean, <laughs> let's talk about the ratio how many times did Jesus flip over tables and make whips? Like, is that like every other page? Because it's not. Right. I'm just gonna I'm gonna spoil it for you. It's not. In fact, Jesus doing the serving and the loving and the listening has a far greater ratio than mm-hmm. some of that divine anger. And so, um, we should probably look to that as well. Something else that you said. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to include this in my sermon Sunday. Um, it's on the document, but we'll see mm-hmm. if, it, if it comes in. Uh, but the quote is from Bruce Waltke, um, Waltke, uh, in his Proverbs, um, uh, commentary. And I, you said something, I just thought this was brilliant in regards to how Christians treat others. The wise have tongues controlled by loving emotions and sound thought. And so speak in a way that makes their internalized knowledge of the moral order attractive. Instead of brutalizing people with their knowledge of the cause-effect relationship and God's ordained moral order, the wise state it kindly, sensitively, and gently with an aim to save their audience, not to condemn and destroy it. Their content and their form of speech makes them convincing. And by Mm. contrast, the mouth of fools who are out of control, excitedly and heatedly gushes forth naked folly. Mm. It, it just strikes me that we have lost the aim entirely in communication, um, that the aim is still, just like you said, the aim is about me. I get to be angry. I have learned these moral things, and it is up to me to go on the warpath and own anybody that disagrees with me Mm. instead of this servant minded. I, I I want to see other people know the goodness of Christ. And so I am going to communicate and I'm going to talk with them in a way that again, that impacts my culture. Now I know this is almost, it might seem for you, the listener, or even you, Michael bear with me, but it might seem that Michael and I are far afield and what we're talking about and how we are showing up as Christians in the culture. But this is where the faith and the culture thing bears out because we're talking about what we believe about who God is, what he does, who we are, and what's our response. We're talking about these baseline beliefs 
that make up our faith. And then we are talking about how that then shows up in our lives every day, how mm-hmm. it looks within the culture. Um, I think this is probably some of what we're going to go through in our faith and culture uh, series, right, Michael? Absolutely. Yeah. And of course, the, the after evangelicalism, what is a part of that? Trying to think about, well, what should what, what are we talking about when we talk about evangelicalism now and, and what should it look like? But most definitely, uh, the faith and culture course starts in a couple of weeks and we're hoping to have a, a number of folks participate in this live course. It, it's going to be our first live course that we're doing, but such an important topic for us to think about and wrestle with, you know, how do we effectively engage in such a polarized context as we find ourselves in, in the, the context of the United States and increasingly in other parts of the world. And, uh, and the one thing, I mean, there are so many things that of course play into this, that not to mention what we think about God, because oftentimes our view of who God is will have a dramatic impact on the way in which we engage culture. And so if we view God, for example, as being vengeful and and uh, wrathful, which he rightly uh, uh, has the, the uh, abilities to do those things, um, then we will naturally look at culture as being a target that we need to correct and admonish and change. Uh, and if need be, we need to take dramatic action to do that. Uh, and of course, there's historical precedent for this. I, I think here of Augustine and uh, and his understanding of how Christ worked in the Apostle Paul's life, for example. He, he wrote that, uh, that Jesus violently converted Paul. And, uh, and so he used that as a foundation for his engagement of culture, where he said that it was proper for the Christian empire to violently overthrow the heathen unless they convert and to force conversions from the heathens, because this is what he saw as uh, his view of Christ's actions with Paul, as well as in other examples. The ends justify the means. And so if we have, you know, if we don't really dig deeply in who we believe God is and how he acts in the world um, and really examine those and uh, and be honest with that examination and then ask the question, well, then if this is who God is, how do we then communicate a compelling description of him in a world that is in such desperate need. And, uh, and so we'll be talking about things like that in this uh, course, course, faith and culture, and, and really trying to understand and wrestle with um, the impact that Christianity should have and the church should have in society. So if, uh, if somebody is going to read this Barna study, what, what do you feel is a, positive reaction for us as believers when we, when we encounter something like this um, so that we don't just come off like hand wringing, right? Like, Oh no, the world that I knew and loved is long gone. Let me go and cry in my corner. 
that doesn't really bring about a, a change or any sort of affect on the world that you desire. So um, what type, what, what do you think is a healthy response for believers who are listening now and hearing this about the culture that we are surrounded by uh, or anybody else who's previously interacted with this? Well, I mean, that's a great question because sometimes when we look at data like this, uh, we can become somewhat uh, depressed, I suppose, uh, discouraged by what we see going on. Um, and and yet at the same time, I mean, there are glimmers, I suppose, of hope that we see that there is still a remnant of belief, of worldview, uh, of a biblically informed worldview and in the context of the United States. And, um, and there is still a, a relative openness to talk about things. Um, for instance, Barnett shares that 79% of the U.S. population believe that God has a reason for everything. Well, there's a great starting point for a conversation with somebody about the Lord. Uh, 77% say they have a unique God-given calling. I mean, those are great points of contact uh, where we can engage with people. 74% say they intentionally try to avoid sinning because they know it hurts God. Boy, I, I mean, how positive is that? 72% uh, claim that every moral choice either honors or dishonors God. So there are there are points of hope here, uh, as we think about you know those in the context of the United States that uh, give us places where we can engage in conversation. I I want to almost take it a different direction in that there is the hand wringing, there is the depression when you hear the slide of the numbers, right? That that fewer and fewer people are claiming Christ. And certainly for the for the long-term game of actually having more people know Jesus, <laughs> uh, that seems like a bad a bad thing, but I take it the opposite way. Like so many people in my world as I have heard for the past 2-3 decades, oh there's just there's Christians everywhere. You know, everybody is a Christian around me. So I don't really have to you know, talk about living out my faith because everybody already believes. This should be this big encouragement to you, the listener, who believes in Christ. The need for others to know Christ is growing more and more every day. We don't have excuses. We don't have to say, I just have a whole bunch of Christians around me. You don't anymore. You don't. And so the need for you to live out faithfully and demonstrably has increased. Mm. And so get out there. Don't feel that other people get to do this, but that you don't. You are a missionary where the Lord has put you. Look outward as how can I take this good news of a loving God to a needy world? What can I do to kind of, quote unquote, get into the game? Uh, this should be a, a bit of like Jesus saying, the fields are white unto harvest. Let's get out there. Mm. Let's not just sit in our cloisters or our spiritual ghettos and say, I'm good here. Like, 
get out. There's people who need the good news that you have. Be encouraged. There's a lot of people who need it. Am I crazy, Michael? No, not at all. No, I mean, I'm reminded of our podcast last week with Randy Newman talking about those pre-evangelistic things that we can be doing. And much of that in our day and age isn't necessarily um, having a deep uh, you know, intellectual understanding of various issues as much as it is us living out faithfully the Christian life. Um, you know, I, I keep referring back to the testimony of the, the Roman uh, official who said, you know, these, these Christians, they look like us, they talk like us, uh, they dress like us, but there's something extraordinary about them. Uh, they live as if, uh, even though they're here, that they belong in another place. And it's that kind of example that's more often than not people see and it's attractive to them because they know there's a difference in the way in which a Christian lives his or her life. So it's that imitation that we so often talk about. You know, we we want to be uh, the, the little Christ in our community that somebody could look to and say, hey, I, I want to be like that. I want to act like that. I want to, uh, you know, uh, be nice like that person is, love like that person is, care for others like that person does. So it's not always having to have a uh, an apologetic ready for an argument with somebody who exactly. uh, you might need to defend your faith toward but it's living out that Christian life so that they can see that, yes, indeed, whatever it is that they say has, in fact, made a difference by the fact that we see it in their lives. Yeah, I think we're all, I mean, well, I think all in our own self-righteousness have people in our minds that pop up and it's like, you give Jesus a bad name. Like you, you in fact, uh, your, uh, your character is notable for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and then on our humble days, <laughs> I think we might realize that could be us at times too, where, mm-hmm. uh, the actions that we portray demonstrate that we haven't yet been changed. Um, that there, are, I mean, certainly brothers and sisters, like we have to come to grips with the fact that we are still in need of a savior today and still in need of change. And it won't be. Our, our growth in Christ won't be complete until we reach eternity with him. And mm-hmm. so, so the day we are called home, we are works in progress. That said, let's not wait until our dying day to, to make that change to be Christ-like. Right. Uh, let, let's start the process now. Because um, I, want, I want people to, you know, I don't care if I ever hear about it but I do want people to look at the way I live and say, that's something I want to reflect. And I want to know what's different. Right. Amen. I I mean, you just think of Paul's admonitions to Titus. Uh, I can't get this out of my mind because I think it's something that we sometimes forget Uh, in first, uh, in first Titus in Titus chapter one, Titus. Oh, Michael, you're writing new scripture. I think, we, I think we know what happens to people who do that. You didn't know that Paul wrote two letters to Titus? 
Titus chapter one. Uh, I love what he tells Titus uh, to look for in those who would be leaders of the church. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And here he begins to describe who this person is. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so you just get this really remarkable picture of a human being who is hospitable, loves good, self-controlled, upright, a holy discipline, whose family is in line as well, uh, not dogmatically, but uh, the lovingly as they father, uh, as they follow the example of their parents, uh, that they're not not charged with debauchery or insubordination. Um, and you know, it was character. It was so important in the early church, and it's what is our first witness in our communities even today. Uh, people see who we are uh, in our character, and. Uh, and so don't, I mean, the, I think the thought here is uh, that don't allow our character to be the reason why somebody doesn't come to Christ. Hmm. Well, I think this is going to be uh, an exciting live series when we go live with our faith and culture podcast. I think, um, the truth of the matter is that we as believers should understand that um, what we believe should always continue to look towards Christ and be refined to look closer and closer to that which he taught and, and has been believed by believers for all time everywhere. At the same time, we should understand that it should impact our culture. And it's going to have to start, like you said, Michael, it's going to have to start uh, with us. And so, um, but uh, I am excited for what we see uh, coming and it is going to be, it's going to be good to, to interact with everybody on this. Um, if you would like to sign up, uh, we will have a link in this, in the show notes, if you will, or you can go to Ephesiology. Uh, actually, what is the Masterclasses website? Yeah, well, you can go to physiology.com and and a uh, there'll be a pop-up there for faith and culture and click on that pop-up and it'll take you to where you can register for that course. Perfect. Well, I hope uh, you all have enjoyed our conversation today. I know I have. Michael, it's always good to see you. And so uh, whether this is your first time interacting with us or uh, you are uh, one of the standard many that download and listen. Thank you for interacting with us. If you would like to continue to do so, go to ephesiology.com and uh, see what some of the materials and resources that we have there. 
uh, please reach out to us on the interwebs, Instagram, Facebook, all of it. We are there. Uh, but we are excited that we get to grow doing theology and community with each other. And so on behalf of Michael, myself, and soon to be Matt, thank you for joining with us on the Ephesiology Podcast.